0: Elias, what do you know about pig butchering? I know very little about pig butchering. I was reminded of that time your wife gave you a birthday present of a pig butchering class, and apparently you managed not to kill anyone.
1: I didn't kill anybody. We ate a lot of pork then. Uh, So much meat from one very large pig but that's not what we're really gonna talk about. That's we're gonna- shame. I'm sorry, but we could talk about it later. But the pig butchering we're gonna talk about actually relates to cybersecurity, right? It's a huge problem. It's a maybe unfortunate name for this romance scam that people are falling for. And we're gonna be talking with Erin West. She's the Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney. She's been working with law enforcement across the country on this scam that costs people about $2.57 billion a year. It's a lot of pigs. A lot of bacon. We're going to get into the headlines of the week. We're going to dig into the Move It Compromise and the CLOP ransomware gang, which is really fascinating. Debate over surveillance reform that's heating up in Congress and recent Chinese hacking revelations. All that and more on today's episode of Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker.
0: She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe.
1: This is Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell. Editor in chief of CyberScoop, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Elias Grohl, senior editor at CyberScoop. Thanks for coming along. It's great to be here, Mike.
0: Give us the news this week. What are the big stories you've been tracking? So, in the last couple of weeks, this ransomware gang known as Clop has—it is Clop. Uh, it is Clop, but it's spelled C L zero P. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got to get a hacker spelling in there. Okay. Yeah, has hit. So, this is a group that's hit several U.S. government agencies and a bunch of other big-name targets with ransomware attacks. They're using a vulnerability in a file transfer software known as MoveIt, which has everyone joking about this breach that they like to move it, move it. That is funny. Do you know that reference? Yes. Great, okay, good. So among among the affected U.S. agencies are the Department of Energy. The U.S. Department of Agriculture may have been hit as well. Slightly unclear, they haven't confirmed, but they're investigating. The oil giant Shell has also been hit, and there are several victims in the UK as well, including the BBC, British Airways, Aer Lingus. So this is a vulnerability that cybersecurity officials have been aware of for weeks. The U.S. government has been urging folks to patch. And in recent days, there have been at least two new vulnerabilities reported in the MoveIt application. So basically, as security researchers are spending more time looking at the software, the more bugs they're finding, which isn't very encouraging. Yeah, and those are just the ones we know about. I mean, so many people use this
1: file transfer software. I was surprised at how many. Things. Yeah,
0: it's one of these fairly obscure, but as it turns out, ubiquitous software applications, which makes it great for a ransomware attack because there are huge numbers of clients of the software with potentially exposed systems. Now, is this going to be something as big as, say, SolarWinds? No, U.S. officials have been very explicit so far to say that it's not on the level of SolarWinds. The only files that are affected by this are files that are stored on this server, so or servers associated with MoveIt. So whereas SolarWinds was used to create much larger access and was used by attackers to pivot into other systems, so far it seems that that isn't happening. Yeah. So CLOP, it appears, is Russia-based but it doesn't seem to be one of these groups that the Russian government is using to carry out attacks on its behalf. At least that appears to be the case so far, right? This is something that very much could change. This is a very murky landscape. And Klopp themselves also insists that they're financially motivated and are not interested in stealing data from governments. And they've issued these really kind of like hyperbolic statements saying, We have no interest in data that we've stolen from governments. And in fact, we're going to delete any data that we've gotten from governments. And there's a little bit of an element of like, the lady doth protest too much here. Or, at the very least, they're a little bit scared that they're going to land in the U.S. government. do you really believe them? No, of course not. But I think they're a little bit scared that they're going to land in the U.S. government's crosshairs because in the last couple of months, the U.S. government has carried out several takedowns. And... Based on the ubiquity of these attacks, I don't think it would be very surprising if Klopp was next. So Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence
1: Surveillance Act is also in the news lately?
0: Yeah. What's that all about? So the Biden administration is making its case for renewing Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And a big reason why they want to do it is what they say is its usefulness in combating cybercrime. So a bit of background here. Section 702 for the uninitiated is this controversial intelligence law that allows the government to collect communications data belonging to non-U.S. persons whose communications transit infrastructure belonging to U.S. companies. Now, that's pretty complicated. So, imagine you're a terrorist operative using your Gmail while working in Germany. Section 702 might be used to go after your communications data, right? Now, because individuals targeted under 702 are often in contact with U.S. persons, said a terrorist operative might be mailing, emailing with his buddy in New Jersey or whatever, right? That means that 702 data also ends up sweeping up a lot of data belonging to Americans. And Democrats hate this because they see it as a civil rights nightmare. And Republicans hate it Because it's been used by the FBI to investigate Donald Trump and his allies.
1: So, this is one of those rare things that is bringing Republicans and Democrats together.
0: Yeah, it's very surprising. And it's a big, I would say, shift in the politics of surveillance on Capitol Hill. For years, it was Republicans that were backing the intelligence agencies to give them this authority and then supported by conservative Democrats. And now Republicans have really turn 180 degrees on this to a large extent, not uniformly by any means, but to a large extent, and are being joined by growing numbers of Democrats who are upset about recent revelations about civil rights violations being carried out under the auspices of Section 702, including, for example, the fact that data belonging to individuals who participated in protests following the murder of George Floyd, for example, were caught up in Section 702. This is something that's really animating folks left, for example. And the reason this is coming up now, right, is this tool, this provision,
1: whatever you want to call it, is sunsetting at the end of the yeah. year, and there's all this, there's a moment for
0: this reform conversation. Yeah, so the clock is ticking as to whether or not they're going to be able to retain this authority And so the White House is trying to build support for this. And one of the arguments that they're making is that we need Section 702 because it's really useful to combat cybercrime. So last week, they declassified some really interesting cases in which Section 702 has been used to go after cybercriminals, including, for example, to identify the attacker of Colonial Pipeline in 2021, which was the ransomware attack that disrupted gasoline supplies to the Eastern Seaboard of the United States and helped uh, also US law enforcement agencies to claw back the ransom that was paid in that case they also used section 702 they say to identify an Iranian attacker on a US nonprofit and were able to identify the attacker and help the nonprofit and kind of make sure that they didn't end up paying a ransom Kexas to them. this Iranian hacker right So basically, long story short, from the White House is this is a really useful tool. We use it to combat cybercrime, and we really, really need to keep it. So they're starting to to declassify a lot more information, which is giving us some interesting little nuggets of information. Yeah,
1: so that'll be an interesting debate that'll, I think, be heating up this fall
0: that we'll be covering as it moves through Congress.
1: And we'll also be talking about it on an upcoming episode of this podcast. So you're also, there's been some new revelations about Chinese hackers that have come out.
0: Yeah. So Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in China this week for meetings with his Chinese counterpart and also with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. And we're in this really interesting moment when the White House is trying to dial down tensions with China, restore economic ties, restore communications between the Chinese and the U.S. military. And at the same time, there's been these really fascinating reports coming out about Chinese hacking activity. So the first one involved Chinese attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure, in particular in Guam. This was revealed by Microsoft in conjunction with a publication by U.S. and Allied Intelligence Services, in which they accused Chinese hackers of targeting communications infrastructure in Guam And what Microsoft claimed, and interestingly, the U.S. government hasn't backed up this claim, but what Microsoft claims is that the access in Guam could have been used to disrupt communications between the United States and Asia in the event of a crisis. Such as the one in Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. So let's say there's an armed conflict over Taiwan. China moves against Taiwan and tries to seize the island, right? Microsoft believes that the access that Chinese hackers had at Guam, which plays hosts to key U.S. military facilities that would be used in a potential conflict with China over Taiwan, that that access could be used to disrupt communications between the United States and the region.
1: Wow. So significant developments there. Thanks, Elias Grohl, for updating us on some of the big stories of the week. Thanks, bye. Erin West is one of those people in the front lines of cybersecurity that you rarely ever hear about, but she is one of the most prolific cyber crime and crypto prosecutors, and she's actually working on what is a very serious issue called pig butchering. Well, Erin West, thank you so much for joining us today on Safe Mode. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So we have so much to talk about. We're going to get into things like pig butchering and crypto scams and other sorts of Cyber crimes that you've been working on for a long time. Well, let's step back a little bit and tell us how big of a problem we're talking about. Like, just how massive is this?
2: This pig butchering scourge is something that we have never seen before. A lot of us might be familiar with traditional romance scams, but we've never before seen the massive enterprise that is coming at us from Southeast Asia. What we're seeing is a very, very successful business that's being operated out of remote locations in Southeast Asia. And it's being run by criminal masterminds who have studied the psychology of how to entice a a millennial to talk to them and invest, how to entice a 30-year-old software engineer in Silicon Valley, how to talk to a 50-year-old divorcee or a 70-year-old man who's lost his wife there's literally a playbook for how to develop those relationships. And what they're doing is they're doing it on a massive scale, using a ton of human power to get it done. And the losses are numbers that we have never seen before. And what we're essentially seeing is a massive wealth transfer in the billions and billions of dollars from the middle class of not just the United States, but number of nations anyone that has money can be a victim of this and and seeing it all moved never to return again to organized crime syndicates based in china
1: well so let's get the name thing out of the way first i mean pig butchering is something a lot of people may not have heard of they think we're talking about something completely different where does that name come from
2: so the name is actually the name that the scammers gave it. It is called Sha Zupan. It's a Chinese term, and it means means essentially butchered pig plate. And the concept behind it is that it's it's so perfect for this crime because what they're doing is they're fattening up the pig, meaning the victim, as they sort of court the victim over a long period of time. It's a long con over weeks. And then the concept is they're going to butcher that pig, but they're not just going to eat part of the pig. They're going to eat the pig from top to tail. They're going to take every last penny that victim has. The prior month that they're courting that victim, part of their objective is to really understand the extent of what that victim has. What what do they own? What are they driving? Where are they traveling? Who's in their life that might also have money? do they own or do they rent? Do they have kids with college funds? And it's a laser-focused operation designed to take every last penny. There are some people who are opposed to the term pig butchering. They think it it's rough on victims, and I can certainly understand that. Right, I can that. understand that.
1: It's not, I want to go around telling people I was a victim of pig butchering.
2: Right. Nobody likes that. But I, I do know that this is exactly the type of crime that needs to be talked about and heard about. And with a name like pig butchering, it kind of slaps you right in the face and you think, oh, God, what is this woman talking about? I want so, to hear more about it.
1: Right. So break down exactly how it starts and sure. why are people falling victim to these scams, right? Everybody's been talking about online scans and you know, scams and catfishing. And you know, I feel like there's a, there's a heightened sense of awareness about this stuff now, more so than it was, say, a decade ago or five years ago.
2: Sure. And I think that for people like you and me who think about scams frequently, it's obvious to us. But the way it's happening to victims is you have a lot of victims who are lonely people and who are happy to see someone reach out from Instagram Or LinkedIn, or the primary places we're seeing are LinkedIn, we're seeing from the dating apps, we're seeing from Instagram, and then we're seeing from just random, what appear to be wrong number texts. And they're texts designed to draw you in for some reason. One of the favorite ones we have at my task force is, you know, Dr. Dan, my dog won't eat dog food. When can I bring him in for you to take a look? And of course, anybody who gets that text, unless they know all about this, might think, oh my gosh, I'm not Dr. Dan, and I sure am worried about this poor dog that's not eating his food. I'll respond to that text. And then before you know it, you're involved in some sort of conversation with someone. And I know for those of us who haven't directly experienced it, it can be difficult to understand. But what I've heard from victims over and over is that the level of manipulation is such that they really do believe they've found a friend. They believe they've found a romantic interest, and that romantic interest is built and developed over time. And by the time the scammer starts talking about cryptocurrency investments, the victim is already so accepting of the fact that they're in a relationship and they trust this person. They've seen this person show them an enviable lifestyle, nice cars, nice travel, And so they have every reason to believe that this new friend or trusted person in their life would not be leading them astray.
1: So at some point, there's an offer put out on the table like, can you invest or can you send me money? Uh, Yeah. Where does that sort of enter into the conversation?
2: It comes up weeks into the conversation and the scammer will say something like, well, you know, do you know how I afford all this? I, I dabble in cryptocurrency. Would you ever consider doing that? I didn't know anything about it either, but my uncle taught me and my uncle could teach you. And so they provide an opportunity in a really palatable way that why don't you just invest and by that point, they know the victim and they know whether that would be $500 to the victim or $5,000. They get them to invest a little bit of money, what would be a little bit to that victim and the way technically it works is that the victim then deposits U.S. dollars into an, an account at someplace like Coinbase.com or Crypto.com, something that they might have heard of. And, then, and the scammers there to walk them through it. And then from there, they convert those U.S. dollars into cryptocurrency. And the scammer directs them how to move it off the platform that's a legitimate platform. Into the scammer's wallet. But our victim doesn't think it's the scammer's wallet because our victim is being shown a website that's completely doctored and they are led to believe that this is all going into an account. But really, it's going straight into the scammer's pockets. Then they showed this victim a crazy increase in value that it goes from 5,000 to 5,500.
1: But is that fake?
2: It's all fake. It, there's nothing there's nothing real about it the money's gone there's no increase in value and so the victim thinks oh this is great look at i'm getting rich oh wow well now i'll put in a little more money and then a little more money and before we know it the scammer has manipulated our victim into, and I am not joking when I tell you, liquidating 401ks and liquidating children's college accounts and borrowing money from relatives and bringing friends in to also reap the benefits of this. And that's why this is so different from the romance scams we've seen before, because it's combining the endorphins from this new romantic relationship, along with the crazy endorphins from, oh my God, I'm getting rich, into the perfect storm where people are doing things that they would never ordinarily do.
1: And if you had to estimate how many people are falling victim to this sort of scam?
2: Well, I know numbers. What we know is that the FBI released their findings from IC3 two weeks ago. And IC3 is the online portal where everyone is encouraged to report scams like this. And what the FBI says is last year, $3.3 billion were lost in investment schemes, online fraudulent investment schemes. And we know that people aren't always apt to report these crimes because they're afraid of the humiliation or the shame. So let's say conservatively, the number's 3X, what is reported. I think it's way more than that. But that's $10 billion, $10 billion being handed over to straight-up criminals. Those are the dollar figures. What I can also tell you is the number of victims that I see daily, weekly, monthly, is is insane. Every single day, I get phone calls from people who are borderline suicidal, who are ending their, you know, they're about to lose their marriage over this, that the devastation of someone losing their entire financial security is a major, major blow to people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can imagine once someone sort of comes to terms that they've been scammed, they've lost money, they feel horrible. So how do you deal with that when you're on the other end of the phone with somebody who just sort of realized what's happened to them? What do you say?
2: It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And I worked in sexual assault for nine years before this. And I really, in my heart of hearts, I see my job as one to serve victims and to really assist with victims. But I have to say the level of just broken people that I've spoken to as a result of this is really, really, it's staggering. I mean, I, I'm i speaking to grown men in tears on the phone and people who just literally don't know what their next step would be. Wow. And so I guess what I say to them is, you know, it's funny. It's like any relationship, right? Where you're like, do you want me to help you? Or do you want me to just listen to you right now? And sometimes they just They need you to listen. And then other times it's like, okay, well, let's talk about logistically what I really can do for you. And that's the work that I've been doing with my task force for the past year and a half.
1: Yeah. And tell me a little bit more about that task force and how you put that together and what that's doing.
2: Sure. So I work for the County of Santa Clara. We have an elected district attorney, Jeff Rosen, who has always had the foresight about really having capable, bright, educated people working in high tech in Silicon Valley. And so we are part of a task force. There are five such task forces in the state of California. We represent the San Francisco Bay Area. So we encompass five counties and about six million people. Our task force is made up of officers from a number of different agencies, local agencies within the county, as well as some of our federal partners. We have someone from HSI, and we have someone from Secret Service. And that gives us a a more broad reach to do even better work. Back in 2018, we got our first case involving cryptocurrency, and that was a SIM swapping case. And that that was new to us and new to law enforcement internationally at that time.
1: And for those who don't know, can you quickly explain what SIM swapping is?
2: It's a horrible crime to have happen to you. You literally go to sleep one night and while you are completely unaware, hackers take over the phone service coming into your phone. So they don't have access to what's on your phone. They have rerouted your telephone traffic so that they are getting your calls and texts. And why that matters is they then go into to change your password on every platform they can think of. And when they do forgot password and Gmail sends a code to the phone number associated with the account, it is the hackers that are holding the phone traffic and they are the ones getting the code. So what they're able to do is to quickly and methodically lock you out of your Gmail, your Dropbox, your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, everything to essentially take over your whole personality. But the reason why it's so devastating is that they're really looking for your cryptocurrency, which then they can move to their own wallets. And unless they're putting it somewhere where like an exchange where we can get at it, it's gone. And people wake up And they don't have phone service, and they've lost a million dollars.
1: It's interesting the way you're talking about how crypto has become this vehicle to carry out scams. You know, when you think about more traditional scams, when sending people money, credit card fraud, I mean, banks have become pretty good at detecting fraud, paying consumers back for losses, helping to provide evidence, and prosecuting these kinds of crimes. Crypto is brand new. What are some of these exchange is doing or not doing to help you pursue these criminals?
2: I'm really glad you brought up that issue about the banks, because I recently had a case where a woman was talking about a Bitcoin ATM fraud that she was involved in and how she was draining the money out of her bank account little by little. And she told me about the safeguards that Chase was putting in her way. And she was like, but I wasn't listening to them. And they told me it was fraud. And I said, it's not fraud. And they told me they're going to shut my account down because it's fraud. And I said, well, it's still not fraud. And she told me that Chase called her three times. She told me her brokerage called her twice and called her sister who had been listed as a trusted person on her account. And so it was the first time I had heard like a first person story about the banks doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So that was a great story. Now, in contrast, we've got a situation where we have people liquidating from traditional banking and putting it into cryptocurrency and then moving that cryptocurrency. And I still think that there's got to be better ways of safeguarding that money when we're talking about essentially someone liquidating their entire net worth and moving it systematically.
1: You're sitting right in the middle of Silicon Valley, you know, Apple, Google, Meta, all down the street. How often are you talking to the platforms about also putting in some guardrails, safeguards, so their platforms aren't used to carry out these sorts of scams?
2: So when I realized what a major problem pig butchering is, and I realized that these compounds are getting bigger. And more and more people are losing money. It seemed to me that there has to be some sort of plan, some sort of ideas about what can we do to to stop this. So I started thinking about all the pieces of this that we could work on. And I called it Operation Shamrock because I, for a long time, had been talking about educate, seize, disrupt. And, I, and so I used that as sort of the three leaves of this shamrock. And one of them, for sure, is Disrupt. So, I mean, definitely educate. We need to educate both law enforcement about how to handle cases like this. We need to educate victims who are in the middle of the scam that they're actually in a scam and that they need to immediately report if they want to get any money back. And we need to educate the general public so that they don't fall into that scam. But the disruption part is exactly what you asked me about. And I'm sorry it took a long, long road to get here. That's quite all right. But the concept there is we've got to disrupt their ability to carry out this business. And so how do we do that? And to me, the obvious first one was, well, let's shut down their on-ramps to the public. How are these predators finding their prey? And it appeared to me that there were four main locations where they were meeting their customers, their victims, their pigs for slaughter. And they were Match, which is the runs the dating apps and Meta, which runs the Facebook and the Instagram and WhatsApp, and there was LinkedIn. And then random text messages is the fourth. I've had conversations with each of those platforms, and I know that each of those platforms is making an attempt and is much better than they once were. But I still believe that there's so much more work to be done here. If we could stop these people from getting access to our victims, we could really make a dent in this whole issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of me thinks, yes, agree that platforms should be more proactive on this. The other thing is, well, how does that really happen? And I imagine there are also some tools that all of us can put in place to maybe stop random spam, you know, unknown callers getting through to our text messages. I think I've gotten those weird texts that were like, hey, is this so-and-so? <laughs> I think, you know, I had you in my contacts, but I've lost it or, or whatever the message is, right? And you, you kind of want to reply, but then you're like, mm, I better not. I mean, so what is your advice to people just to make sure that they're not put in a position in the first place to get some of these messages or not to respond? Like, what's your advice to people so we, we're not having more pig-butchering victims?
2: Uh, you make a good point that it can't just be the platforms responsible for people's personal responsibility here. One of the things that I always say when I teach about this is that anybody who is trying to make contact with you on these platforms that you don't know, you should be very wary of and you should vet them before you take on their friendship. I can imagine situations where people are getting contacted by people that they really do don't know at all and don't have reason to know. You need to be on a heightened state of alert for anybody that is trying to friend you in any situation electronically. We're careful of random people that approach us at the mall. We should be careful of random people that are approaching us in our digital lives as well. And you're right, as tempted as we might be to write back and say, I'm not that person when we get the fake text, there's no reason to do it. So With all of that, I suggest blocking numbers. I suggest blocking people who are trying to friend you that you just don't know. And just really be wary of the motivation of anyone you don't know who is trying to develop a friendship with you.
1: Well, Aaron West, I feel like we could talk about so much more. This fascinating work that you're doing, which I feel is incredibly important. So thanks for that. Hopefully you'll come back on this show and talk more about other things you're working on, and maybe you can tell us some success stories you're having as well as you fight this battle. So hopefully you'll come back, but thanks again for doing the show.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom, or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.